This is an irregularly regular podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. It is the air that is breathed and the water that nourishes and provides, but ownership of land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self-determination and reclamation of land. Hello, welcome to another episode of Something Something Michael's Podcast. Still going to come up with a name. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Peter. How's it going? Actually, oh, good afternoon. Beautiful, beautiful afternoon out there. Yeah, what are we doing here? <laughs> I, I, I know in my last episode I was able to, um, to do the podcasting in an impromptu alfresco setting. It's a shame I couldn't uh, do that again today. I'm, I'm stuck inside a room um, with the heater on. Uh, it's a kind of situation right now where um, the interiors are more colder than the outside and I think it'll take, once spring kicks in, I reckon it'll take about a few weeks for um, the interior to become more warmer than the outside. Um, anyway, let's talk more about the weather, Peter, as I, I feel that that might be <laughs> the best way to go in terms of, a, of an attractive podcast. <laughs> <laughs> The question is, what can you do about it, Michael? That's the question, isn't it? What What can I do about the weather? That's absolutely. That's the question, isn't it? Okay. Well, I think that uh, I think that's a bit of a challenge for the for the greater the greater lefty ratbagism. I think um, I believe that falls under the banner of climate change. So, Peter, this is your second um, second go of it, and I wanted to invite you back because. I'm hoping that the audio isn't a shit this time. I've I've got a bit more of a handle over it compared to the last time that I was uh, that that I was with you, and I, I might also add that that was my first attempt at it. So very much popping the cherry. Things have been pretty busy on my end with one such project, and that's been writing a thesis on um, most recent social housing policy. I think I gave you a copy the night before, Peter. I was just wondering whether you thought what it was drilling towards should be a policy that should include voices and discussion and ideas and participation from social housing residents, but that might necessarily be happening within the contents of the policy. Um, so your thoughts? I, I can see what you're aiming at there. Just uh, I've, I've probably read about half your thesis because just the time time factor. But uh, there were several thoughts that came to mind that it, it's about empowering the people uh, to have control over over what gets done and what, what needs to be done and how that, how that sort of conglomeration of ideas can come together to, to actually improve the lot of, of people in, in public housing and and possibly even, even spread it through the community. What came to mind was I've had several trips to China over the years, and um, the way that housing is done there. Okay, you, you, you I'm not agreeing with what the the CCP or anything here, but I think they have a great model for the way public housing is um, controlled, and in they have local uh, area. Uh, elected area committees which run certain estates of public housing and they're instrumental in looking after the people in those tenancies. Uh, they also have tenancy uh, within those separate 
communal housing projects, and, and they feed into local government, whether that's the CCP. They are able to exert a fair, a fair bit of pressure through the CCP and, and get amenities and all those sorts of things and things that need to be done in the, in the, in the housing context. But they, they are talking about some sort of social housing that's supported by the state, not necessarily for profit. That is also disappearing now in China because the privatisation of everything is is the same as here. Neoliberal project uh, goes across all boundaries, and 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 those people are now being pushed out of those those that communal housing and having to fend for themselves. But in but as I saw it um, there um, in, in China, it, it was also one of the reasons why they were able to control the pandemic because they had people in, at the front gates of those communities uh, and also committees uh, inside the, the communal housing that were able to do the preliminary feed-in the, to the local government areas, then the, the local health authorities and so forth, so that they could actually control the people that came in and out of those communities, uh, were able to treat people in those communities, make sure they got fed, all those types of things. That, that, to me, while it's disappearing, seemed to be a great thing. Regarding that tenancy model that you just described, like how much buy-in does social housing residents have within those groups, how much authority and autonomy they have, and um, how much of it is a, a, a bit of a stoush or negotiation with, with services or state representatives that, that might be taking part in the meetings? Well, I think that they can exert a lot of pressure on local state elected officials. Okay, we know that the, the, the actual state is fairly corrupt and, the, and that the CCP is not the be-all and end-all and that they exert a, a lot of pressure on the people below them. But for uh, to a certain extent, the people are still able to exert and remove certain figures. And, I mean, the CCP don't want local conflicts so to avoid that. They'll often throw money at, at, at issues. One thing you also saw in those communities is that they're, they're very cohesive. They have uh, actual areas where they can uh, exercise, do outdoor activities. They have indoor amenities where common rooms where they can meet, uh, where, they, where they play pool, where they uh, do whatever they want in, inside, inside their communities. So there's a lot of mixing going on uh, within the within the community sharing um, of uh, facilities and so forth uh, sharing of laundries and and so forth yeah I suppose that the comparison there to um, to New South Wales public housing is that while there is I would argue still a, a sense of community within public housing estates within New South Wales and perhaps just as dependent uh, the tenants are with these communities as they would be in the, in the China social housing models. But I would also further argue that perhaps maybe the, the Chinese social housing infrastructure doesn't encounter the, as much decay as, as they do in New South Wales. Would that be fair assessment, Peter, or is it something a bit more nuanced well, I think than as that? They, I think as they turn to a more capitalistic and neoliberal policies that, um, yeah, I think they're allow allowing more decay and the, the the newer houses that people are being put into are actually private privately owned. So um, there's still majority majority public housing there and 
they're very, very large estates. So um, in, in New South Wales, you could say that uh, it's very hard to get your voice heard. There are very few public meetings. And when after the riots in Macquarie Fields, it was very difficult to get a meeting together because uh, there were people on both sides of the fence and uh, never the twain should, should, should meet. But there were those that were trying to improve it and others that were trying had their own political agendas within the political parties which were these people were specifically placed within the communities and they saw themselves as leaders and so the, the grassroots didn't have a chance to, to get up there and and so and quite often the meetings would end um, in, in a brawl or, 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 or have no specific conclusion about some common commonality uh, working together yeah that that's interesting peter because I, I i remember in our last episode we did talk a lot about the riots in macquarie fields the events leading up to that event and also what was happening in neighboring estates around macquarie fields so i think the thrust of the argument that we we're getting to was that there were a series of actions by new south wales in terms of enforcing social housing renewal, um, which was compounding upon previous problems involving public housing or in terms of the decay stuff that we were just mentioning, which results, to, to me, catalyzes a, a flashpoint like that seen within the Macquarie Fields riots. But we definitely went over that stuff um, in the last episode, Peter. You're talking a bit there about the aftermath. Things didn't really get so much traction afterwards because of a variety of interests where there was a, a lack of common ground found. Could you perhaps go a bit more into what those different factions or people or stakeholders might be? Local Labor and Liberal Party candidates and members always cultivated certain groups on the ground who, who uh, had access to uh, local facilities for meetings and that those sorts of things. In a lot of cases, the there was never any voice there from people. And one of the responses uh, to the to the to the riots was very shortly after after the riots some of the housing was still okay in bad repair i'm, I'm not saying that they, they were they were perfect but they're in badly they in badly need of repair quite large areas a couple of acres of housing that was just boarded up the people were were moved and shipped to another area and and those housing that housing was just boarded up Very shortly they came along with the bulldozers and just bulldozed those houses down now those houses even as a, a community project could have been repaired, they, they could have uh, had lots of renovations done to make them really livable. It's better than just throwing people out onto the streets or, or even moving to another neighbourhood where um, this uh, individualistic solution was, was, the, was the way to go. I mean, that they preferred that it was always this uh, nuclear family solution rather than community solution they didn't the danger to the to the political parties is that that people get together it's a bit like the trade union movement in, in australia at the moment where you you have peak bodies and trade unions who see themselves as intermediaries between capital and labor and and on the one hand you've got the workers who have to go through this uh, conduit and and the unions act as a filter between them and capital. And being as intermediaries in the middle, the unions actually exacerbate the status quo because they're saying we, we, our reason for existing 
is both for capital and the workers, but the people, the workers at the bottom don't get a say. It's the same sort of thing, yeah. Peter, I think where we were coming from, talking about uh, the, the different barriers and different forces that obstruct any activities within public housing estates, would you like to describe some of those forces and how they potentially impact upon uh, social housing activism? As I was saying to you about the position that you're in, and I realise that uh, social workers believe that they're doing the best, but the um, they, they have no ulterior matters, but it's just the, the, the political superstructure which they work under limits what can be done for the tenants. And from the tenants' point of view, it also stifles any activity on the ground where they can actually better themselves. So instead of, uh, say, a group of people in public housing decide that they're going to repair a house or something, there's this whole bureaucratic process has to go through and it'll probably get uh, stymied by by some social worker that'll say no you can't do that or you can't use you can't use that hall for the meeting because we can use it but you can't use it because you know we, we have to have uh, permission and we have to have uh, insurance and so forth it's just the way things work one thing I will need to disclose that the views that I express are my own and not necessarily the, the organisation that I am for, particularly as well with the fact that uh, there are protocols within my organisation not to actually name the organisation that I work for whenever I do stuff privately or in my own time. So that's, that's the stuff that, um, that I need to disclose so I can perhaps talk a bit more forthright and candidly about things. Uh, within that context, Peter, what are some of the things that in your previous experience that you've, you've attempted to organise within social housing communities and, and where do you feel that there's been that, that barrier or break by different forces? Because we, we've described a few there, New South Wales government, the media narrative and even frontline service workers. Most of them are very simple things because couldn't get couldn't get things moving off the ground. But we were able to, um, like after a, a, a kid was run over by a, a cars uh, travelling very fast around those suburban roads that that exist in within estates, we were able to get speed humps. And I mean, we actually wanted chicanes that oh, instead of speed humps, but the speed hump became the became the thing and that was basically taken over by one of the political parties or even though that movement started on the ground to get to get speed humps okay you're starting at a very base level i understand that mm. but um that was all that all that was possible but then then the kudos for that would go back to the political party and say well look what we did for the local community but that uh, but that's not what happened on the ground i mean there was a huge outcry about the there, say people speeding around there where, where children had very little space to play and were playing on roads, that we were able to get those things. But, yes, it took a great deal of credit. Maybe it doesn't matter who the kudos goes to, but at the end of the day, they take over the narrative overall uh, with those little things that, that get off on the ground. That's, that's just an example, you know. I suppose that idea of kudos, that whenever there's a battle of that, it also removes the momentum that any social housing communities might have towards creating their own sense of autonomy within communities and also agitating for a sustaining of that autonomy, of which I would argue that social housing communities are pretty hard-pressed to do so because it is a relatively powerless position 
am I painting too grim a picture or is or are there some some real tangible possibilities to build upon and I suppose the other thing I want to add in there as an added caveat as well Peter is that what possibilities are there for ally building with other friendly types in terms of potentially creating some sort of coalition front maybe I guess that in the beginning any movement on the ground has to be fairly broad and draw in some of the more progressive forces in in those areas. But what I've experienced is that the left in general and the progressive movements are not very well placed within those communities and are basically inner city constructs and orientate towards people going to university. As you know, people going to university, they have to have money. The other thing is that Maybe the socialist movement in parts of Victoria now in the in the, the local government election may be a starting point with socialists actually getting down and dirty on the ground. Just how much input is from local residents in those communities is another thing. Or whether the, the those, those socialist parties within those local government elections are only interested in the party again, it is another thing. To me, that seems to be the critical issue then. Like, what is that connective tissue between different community groups or different social movements, in this instance, social housing residents and the communities they live in, and how much that connects with different socialist parties? Is that the, the way to progress, do you think, Peter, or is there still scope for greater activities within the communities themselves? I think that to to put put out the socialist narrative out there for people to learn and to examine it might might be a good thing but in the end if the ordinary residents and tenants and so forth are not involved in making that policy then then you you come to the same end uh, uh with party politics that's the thing going back 20 years ago I stood as a socialist candidate in Macquarie Fields. I wasn't uh, very well versed in socialist politics, but I I was grounded in the community. Was able to get near ten percent of the vote. I'm not saying, but we did we did go around. We even went to the the army barracks at Holsworthy, where the housing problems of the people in the Holsworthy barracks was absolutely shocking. Where people came out at we we. Talk to people in those places. and Sorry, Peter, just to cut in just to, and just to clarify, was that a state election campaign? It was a state election campaign. Yeah, because yeah. I know that the seats at state level are definitely more particular to Macquarie Fields compared to federal. Yeah. But yeah, a 10% result is actually quite phenomenal for someone uh, presenting a socialist platform. So mm. what did you do to be able to get such a result? So you're saying that you're hitting army <laughs> barracks and... Don't quote me on that 10%. The overall vote was uh, somewhere between 6 and 10%, uh, depending on which booth it was. That's yeah, still but, a big bracket for a socialist yeah. party. Yeah. But we did the door knocking. We did the public meetings. We even <laughs> drove up and down Liverpool Main Street with a loudspeaker hanging out the window of a car. Mm. Uh, we... Uh, knocked on the doors of. Uh, we, we, uh, we were a bit reticent about going into the uh, holes with the army barracks, uh, but when we actually talked to the the, the wives of, of soldiers and that that were stuck there, they had many maintenance issues that were never addressed by the Department of Defence and, and mildew and so forth. And we, we spoke to, to public housing residents all around Quarry Fields and all the 
over at Hoxton Park and so forth. And the issues were all the same. And, and it was we're trying to build that commonality. We also debated local Labor Party candidate that um, Petulio and all those sorts of people were part of the. Did you have Craig Knowles, or is that to, or is it go before that the, guy? We had the we had the kleptomaniac Craig Knowles over there, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, we had his father before that. It was around yeah. the time of his father. His father had just been stood down for shoplifting or something. <laughs> it's interesting <laughs> how it all remains within the family. <laughs> so. Um, uh, the, the Liberal Party always put up uh, real estate agents and so forth in, in the local area, and they were pretty easy to uh, to have a go at. Most of them were were illiterate and and had no concept of what was going on outside their own little uh, real estate shops. Well, I so. think for the Macquarie Fields electorate, even the Liberal Party will try to stump up a candidate and be pretty transparent about the idea of them being cannon fodder because they know that they're not going to win anything. Uh, in those days, too, um, you had the Griner government in power. This is going back a bit. Yeah, and we uh, and Macquarie Fields then included Cabra, parts of Cabramatta. So we um, also went. We, we didn't know how we were going to get uh, how we we're going to how we would face the people of Cabramatta because they were always uh, against what we believe was socialism and so forth. But we actually were received pretty well. And one day we met Griner in the street who who was out there um, trying to denigrate us and, and anyone else that came there. So Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing that you, you that you raised there, Peter, was that um, is trying to find common grassroots issues. And I, and I find that... I find it's quite interesting to see how you were able to ascertain that um, returned veterans had their tenancy problems, which is definitely a, a run-of-the-mill problem that social housing residents encounter. I, I'm not too surprised that, that you might have gotten a, a more positive response within um, within communities in Cabramatta, perhaps rather than, than taking on the, the actual ideological programmatic platform, which I would argue that is very much a, a criticism against some of the more inner city socialist types the funny funny part about it was that our biggest vote was actually on the holes where the army base <laughs> in the booze there which was quite crazy uh, yeah. uh, i mean there were there, there were real housing issues of course that's all been removed now i mean that uh, yeah and they're and basically they're placed in private housing paid by the department of defense i would say that that was a process of detentrification Yep. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, what uh, those vet houses have been replaced with a privately owned housing community and also a restructuring of federal electorate boundaries there. Absolutely. And I would say yep. that a fair whack of that is now, uh, is now presided over by uh, a local member by the name of, I think, Craig Kelly, head stooge I'm not of... Familiar. Um, I'm not familiar with that one. He's a very much a, a, a head stooge to, or an offsider to Scott Morrison, but he's also a guy that that advocates for um, hydrochlor. What's that stuff that Donald Trump reckons gets rid of COVID? Hydrochloroxine or something? Anyway, this guy is basically advocating for that. Chloroquine, anyway, chloroquine, yeah. Yeah, this is a guy that's um, advocating for um, for that as a cure as well. So. That's what represents the, the Holsworthy electorate these days. So I think um, things have definitely come full circle in the degentrification stakes. 
Yeah. Did, did you know anything of Don Symes, uh, local uh, action group around the, the, the holes with you in those days? He was an old the communist guy that was that had a progress association uh, in Liverpool and actually advocated for people over on that side. Okay, never heard of him. Uh, this was back yeah. in the Griner yeah. days? Well, he's only he probably only died less than 10 years ago, but he, he was a, a great advocate for the voice of, of tenants and uh, and that in that uh, north of the north of the George's River side of Holsworthy and so forth. But he, the Liverpool Progress Association, was actually uh, trying to trying to get that voice out in not only into local government. Uh, they were also elected to local government, but uh, to, uh, to put pressure on state governments as well. I thought that Progress Association type of thing was a um, fantastic movement because at times they got the Greens movement, Jack Mundy, to come and speak to their meetings in Liverpool and that sort of thing. Uh, lots of tenants were invited to those meetings. They were, they were very progressive when, when, you, when there was nothing else on the ground, you know what I mean? Yeah. And if it attracts the likes of Jack Mundy or the late Jack Mundy, that, that definitely seems to be an indicator that, that something is working. Would you say, possibly just getting close to the, the end of um, our episode today, Peter, would you say that, that there are similar possibilities remaining, not just within Macquarie Fields, but perhaps even in your neck of the woods in terms of trying to strike up those political commonalities and perhaps building upon those also? I think uh, in places like Minto now with this individual, individualistic solution of private housing, it's less possible than it was. I think going back to the, the, the real public housing estates, though, in Macquarie Fields and possibly Ayrs and so forth, there are great possibilities. But um, it's going to take some momentum to get them off the ground. It's not, it, it's, you, you'll probably start out with a very small group and, and, and go on for a long, long time. But I think that momentum can be built. And, I, and do you need outside support from left-wing groups or do you just go ahead and do your own thing because at the end it's the tenants the voices of the tenants that that matter not necessarily the parties as a potential lefty rat bag that has been able to get themselves on the wage of a prominent not-for-profit organization uh, which cannot be named <laughs> do you have any advice for this said individual in terms of how they might contribute to to such a thing May or may not be me. I know from my uh, union activist days that I was very much against the grain and was uh, shunned by the trade union movement, but it didn't stop me from doing work on the ground. In, in, in cases, I was ostracised, I was they tried to be sacked, and you, you, have to, you still have to stand up. You still have to defy the authority, and you still have to... Uh, insist that the the voice of those people that you're representing is paramount in in any decision that, that, that that's made even if you have to argue, argue with the authority to say that you must listen to those voices and then explain why their ideas are, are wrong it's still you have to listen to those voices and take them on board take take the good bits take the bad bit who decides that though is is that you have to convince 
those people on the ground. They eventually decide what, what the outcome is. Being an intermediary puts you in a very difficult position because, like I was saying, with a trade union, being an intermediate, you're actually perpetuating the status quo instead of building that mass from the base to confront the uh, the authority or the or the hegemony that, that 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 controls the whole show. That's a dilemma, isn't it? What line one must walk as that intermediary force, whether you are a community development worker or a union organizer, to which I, I find that there's definitely. Uh, lots of similarities with both roles, it would be worth further teasing out. But um, I think uh, we've come to the end of this episode, Peter. I would, I'd, I'd like to, to perhaps put a pause on that one and, um, and maybe further explore that in later episodes. I'd be particularly interested, Peter, in maybe talking a bit more in future episodes about uh, encounters with the union and how that seems to have been a, a very hit and miss process. Would you be up for that in a future episode, Peter? Definitely. I think there's a, a, a lot that I learned uh, in the 20 or 30 years that I was in the trade union movement uh, as being an outsider and not being part of the machine. So, you know, the, 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 you, can still, you can still have victories, like be working, working for a state government uh, enterprise, uh, you were never allowed to speak publicly. And I was hauled over the coals many times for actually speaking public, but you, but you have to do it. But you also need to be able to defend yourself because the, the union is not going to defend you against, against those sorts of things when it's a chance to get rid of you, you know what I mean? I'd be very interested in teasing out more specific examples of those experiences, Peter, but um, we'll have to leave that for another episode. You're my highest rating guest at the moment, so I would definitely like to um, selfishly seize that opportunity and possibly get another 40 or 50 listeners in on the bargain. <laughs> maybe maybe we have to do a live YouTube uh, cast or something and and we'll do an interview and people can join in. Yeah, well, that's what you've been trying to get me to do, Peter, to try to um, explore <laughs> explore new channels. All, all the best, Michael. Um, we're making progress. Yeah, well, I'm hoping for at least a, a more crisper audio for you this time, Peter. I feel that's the, that's the least I can provide for you this time around. I hope to talk more into the future. Thank Lovely you, Lovely talking with you, Michael. Thank you very much. All right. See you, Peter. Bye.